Hello, this is the Heart of the Piano podcast. Before we dive into this episode, which is about the absolute most important skill to practice that's going to make the most difference to your playing, I'd like to say an enormous thank you to the C. Beckstein Piano Centre in Manchester, England, for letting me use their practice and teaching rooms to record these podcast episodes. The rooms are soundproofed, which makes them ideal for podcast recording and practicing and teaching, of course, and five of the rooms are equipped with lovely Beckstein grand pianos. It's a brand new, stunning-looking showroom filled with a great selection of pianos. So if you're looking for a piano and you're based in the UK, do come to the C. Beckstein Piano Centre in the centre of Manchester. You can check out their website at beckstein.co.uk. And now, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Heart of the Piano podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heart of the Piano podcast, where we are, as always, exploring the world of piano. This is going to be the first in a series uh, looking at the most important things that I teach my students on a regular basis, which are psychological in nature. So in the last few years, where I've been really developing a lot of my teaching, uh, instead of doing this podcast, <laughs> there's been quite a few years where I haven't done many episodes, my teaching methods have become a lot more structured and, and a lot more in-depth in terms of the psychology. So, uh, yes, over the next few episodes, I'm going to go one by one through the most important things that I say to my students. And what I find is that when my students take this stuff away and actually practice it, there are giant, giant, absolutely enormous leaps in ability. One very common problem that my students have is they really, um, and particularly my adult students, and when I say my students, I'm going to refer mostly to my adult students here, they generally love all the stuff that feels like hard work. So we're talking technique, um, we're talking all like the, the nitty-gritty stuff of analysis in the music, um, exactly like the best ways to move your hands and move your fingers, uh, the stuff which is sort of very left brain uh, for people who've been listening to recent episodes to do with the brain hemispheres and brain lateralization. Um, the thing that really actually does make the biggest difference in most of my adult students is like what some people might call the zen, <laughs> the stuff that's, that's usually very difficult to practice. Now, I've been kind of developing very particular strategies for how you teach things that um, people traditionally think can't really be taught all that well. So, so the things that most people would think of as being quite zen. Um, this doesn't mean that I don't teach all the other nitty-gritty analysis, technical, do this with this note, analyse it like this. I absolutely do do all of that stuff. But what I look for is a balance. And very often, even though I know that my adult students are hungry for all of this fulfilling intellectual stuff to do with the music, if we don't know how to do all the psychological stuff, in some ways it's, it's a little bit wasted. So that there is a problem that all my students know. I nag them all the time. They know that they need to go away and do all these things that I'm going to be covering in, in these future episodes, but they kind of just don't go away and do them because uh, either they're not convinced of how important these things are to do or it just doesn't become a habit. But anyway, let, let's get to the first one. This is absolutely the most important one and I bring it up over and over and over again in my lessons. So uh, the way that I usually put this uh, to my students in the lessons is what is the number one most important thing to always be prioritizing in every single moment, every second, every split second that we are practicing at the piano? What do we want to make sure that we are doing most? 
And I'll let you have a little bit of a think about this for a few seconds. What do you think? What do you think that number one thing should be? And, and I'll give you some more hints. Um, so basically, for people who aren't doing this, I think that what happens is that the playing just sounds completely unmusical. Um, it just sounds flat, flat as a pancake, you know. So maybe what I'll do is I'm going to play something from ABRSM grade one. So this is from the 2021-2022 syllabus. The new syllabus is going to be released in roughly a month's time. Um, but this is um, the very first piece from the grade one book. Um, and what I'm going to do, I'm going to play it twice. I'm going to play it the first time without this thing that I nag all my students should be the number one thing that should always be there, always. There should always be some kind of focus in this kind of direction. Uh, so the first time, it's just going to be me trying very hard to do it this way without the, this uh, extra ingredient. And then the second time, I'm going to add this ingredient. Uh, so this is called a toy. It's anonymous. Uh, it's number 193 from the Fitzwilliam uh, Virginal book, uh, volume two. Uh, adaptation by Richard Jones. So here we go. I'm just going to play it the first time. Uh, this is without the extra ingredient. And, and it's actually really, really difficult to play it in this way by doing it without this extra special ingredient. I find it so much harder, even a grade one piece. I find it quite hard to, to do it. So here we go. Right, there we go. So that's me playing without the ingredient. Now, here's the extra special ingredient. Let's see if you can kind of guess what is it that I'm doing differently in my mind. So the, very, the first time that I played, it's got all the right dynamics, it's got all the right articulations, it's got the phrasing that's marked. What I'm trying very hard to do was to do everything that was in the music. So I'm still going to do everything that was in the music, but just add an extra special ingredient. So let me do that again uh, briefly. Here's the first go. Okay, and then the second go. So what do you think? What do you think the difference is? In every single moment, every single moment that you are practicing, that you are playing, in my opinion, the thing that makes the most difference is to look for what there is to love. So if I play it without looking for what there is to love, I'm just trying to play all the right notes, I'm trying to play everything correct, and I'm put correct in inverted quotes. So, and, and uh, when people play, you know, Now, I'm going to try and articulate a little bit what's going on when I look for what there is to love. Ultimately, this is not something, it's not an intellectual exercise. 
you kind of want to feel what is there to love about this piece. Admittedly, it might not be the most lovable piece in the world, and very often the, the more easy a piece of music is, the more it's for a beginner, the harder it generally will be to love. So grade one pieces are not always that lovable. But if I play this and, and look for what there is to love... So, part of looking for what there is to love, I think, by, um, by definition, it can't just be a bunch of notes. It, it, it needs to sort of have some character. It needs to be something. It is in three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. Now, I think partly what there is to love about this, it's got a slightly uneven rhythm. It's, it's, um, da, 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 two, three. So there's an emphasis here on the second beat. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. So so it's, um, it's a little bit uneven in the rhythm and that makes it kind of quite quirky and quite interesting, I think. Uh, and again, that's not an intellectual thing. It's sort of, I feel with the body. Uh, just slightly overdid it there, but, but there's, there's like a, the body suddenly moves differently in, in the fourth bar where it goes one, two, three. It's quite bright in character. It's, it's not like... Um, um, you know, it's not sort of quite sad. It's, it's definitely bright. So it's happy. That's something to love about it. It's got sort of a happy-go-lucky kind of kind of flavour to it. And then it goes quiet. Da, 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 da. Oh, and, and it's answered. So, so you've got here uh, quite high up. Um, um, quite bright, quite useful. And, and then you've got a lower voice, da, 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 which answers it. Um, so, so there's two people here, there's like a conversation, it's conversational. Again, you know, like we, we could say that in an analytical, intellectual kind of way. But uh, I think there's something, you know, potentially lovable that we go, here's person one. Um, person two, a um, little bit older, deeper voice. Uh, maybe a little bit more chilled out because this is quiet. Um, And then it's, it's quite excitable. So, so the one um, up here is, is an excitable voice. And this is, yes, yes, I agree. I agree. That's, that's fun. Uh, what, is there, what else is there that we can kind of love about this? Um, there's a flow to it. It's not just... And incidentally, that would be like the epitome of not looking for what there is to love. And that's how a lot of people play, looking at one note at a time. Uh, in many ways, uh, people who've listened to the podcast episodes about right brain. Right brain uh, and looking for what there is to love. Love is quite a right brain kind of um, way of being. For people who who have listened to my podcast episodes so far uh, about left brain, right brain, and there will be more of these, uh, you'll remember that I'm constantly referring to a book by Ian McGilchrist called The Master and His Emissary. And actually, the very last chapter sort of says, well, what's the solution for all of the problems of our time caused by an overemphasis on the left brain and that the left brain should be the, the hemisphere that is in charge? And he says that love, love is the answer. 
Uh, you, know, you have to read the book, it gets quite deep. But basically, love is the, the epitome of, of a right-brained experience. So um, uh, anyway, let, let me um, talk about some of the most common problems which people have when I say to them, look for what there is to love in every single moment. Now, at some point in the future episode, I am going to talk about um, this psychological theory called self-determination theory, uh, or SDT for short. Uh, now, I think to some of you, the, the acronym SDT might mean something completely different. Uh, so I apologize for that. I didn't come up with this uh, acronym, uh, SDT, but self-determination theory. It's so, so useful. Um, uh, I've been looking at it recently. And one thing in particular that I find incredibly useful about this it basically, um, uh, in a nutshell, it breaks down the fact that all human beings and all human beings all over the world um, have three common core psychological needs. No matter what culture you come from, there, there seems pretty compelling evidence that, that we all have these three fundamental needs and that if we don't feel that we're getting them met, we have real problems. So the first one is the need for autonomy. That's a really interesting one, but I'm not going to talk about it today. It's not so relevant. The second one is the need to feel competent. And that's huge. That's absolutely massive. Uh, and then the third need is the need for connection, the, the need for relatedness. Now, something that I think is really interesting is that this psychological need for competency, for the feeling of competency, it's incredibly subjective. Who decides what is competent and what isn't competent? And um, I think sometimes we, when we get very perfectionistic, we get kind of very greedy. We get, we get hungry and greedy that, that we need to feel competent. And uh, I know, you know, I've done a lot of meditation, uh, particularly in, in recent years. There's a very particular feeling that I know I have in my body when, when I'm being consumed by the psychological urge, need to feel competent. And in my opinion at the moment, and I'm still sort of thinking quite a lot about this, I think that it's completely opposite. It is absolutely opposite to the, the psychological need to feel connected, to feel related to people and to, uh, and to music, for example, that you can feel very connected and related to. Now, something that, uh, that sometimes people point out that um, it's possible to feel driven, to connect, to, to have a psychological need to feel connected to the music and feel competent. Now, that's, that's absolutely fine. What I'm arguing is that in any given moment, we can either recognize that what is driving us, what, what our need is, what, and we almost, and, and I can feel it as a physical sensation, that there is a, an, an urge, a deep hunger to feel competent. And in that moment, I don't think it's possible to simultaneously feel the need to feel connected. I think that when we feel the urge to, that we need to be good at something, we're not really thinking with empathy about people. I think it's very difficult to see people uh, with empathy, to feel for them, to be really truly curious and interested in people as human beings and be driven by the need to be seen as competent. I, I, and, you know, this is something for you guys to, to have a little bit of a think about. But certainly when we're making music, 
uh, and I see this all the time in my students and I see this in myself because this never really ultimately goes away. Uh, I think to some degree we're always having some kind of inner battle with this. If I played this same piece and the thing most driving me is, oh my God, people are going to be listening to me. I have to make sure that everyone thinks it's competent. And then I start thinking, well, what are all the things in it that people might be hearing that might not be competent? Okay, I have to make the, the opening sort of really even. Uh, I have to get all the emotions right. Um, uh, and then... Um, so that's me being driven by, by the need to come across as quite competent. And the way that you're hearing me play that should probably sound quite familiar because I think that is probably how most people will play in an exam. Now, if I can, and, and uh, to people who've listened to the, um, the last episode that I did, which was episode three on uh, the brain hemispheres and brain lateralization. And so with, with Cheryl, we were talking quite a lot about before you even start playing, is it possible to already feel that you are competent, to already feel that, that, you, that you are confident um, so that you can just go straight into all the right brain stuff, which includes looking for what there is to love. Now, if I don't care like whether or not it's competent, that, and, and by that I mean it, it is competent, I will always be good enough. It, it has, I have to feel that I have reached a level that is good enough and now I can focus on looking for what there is to love. Um, automatically I start to play it slightly differently. I start to have slightly different articulation without even thinking about it. Uh, I, I play it slightly faster um, and, and it's not because I'm, it's not a conscious decision in any way, it just happens naturally. Um, but, but the way I'm playing it, da, 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 um, I, I wouldn't think about articulating it in that way if I was just thinking, oh my god I have to play it really well. Um, Yes, so throw away any need to feel that, that, that I'm good at this. Throw away the fact that people might be judging me, which can be tricky. But um, uh, again, if you're looking for what there is to love, that is really the opposite of worrying about whether or not people are judging you. Think about being spending time with someone, a person who you love. And that can be, you know, the love that you have for, for a parent or for, for family or for friends or for uh, somebody that you have a romantic relationship with. When you're really feeling connected with them and when you're really feeling that things are going well, you're not worrying about how you're being judged. And if you start to worry about how that person is judging you, suddenly the ability to feel deeply connected to them is just going to fly out of the window, really, if, if you think about it. So yeah, let, let me demonstrate again. I'm looking for what there is to love. I don't care about whether or not I'm good. And then, and then um, I also start to feel the tension and release. That's obviously not the end. Um, I, I start to sort of feel some of its charm. So hopefully you can start hearing that, that there is charm that, that I'm putting in there. Just purely as a result, of not worrying about being judged and looking for what there is to love. Now, this is obviously very difficult <laughs> for a lot of people. And this brings me to another reason, another common problem that people have when they do this, um, which is why they, they don't build this ability to um, always be looking for what there is to love. And this is just basically not practicing doing it. So I think to a lot of people, whether or not they are looking for what there is to love with a piece of music, it's something that is either just there or not there. They'll learn the piece and go, do I love this piece? 
and they'll go, um, hopefully they'll go, oh, I really love this piece. And then it's just always there. Or they don't love it. They always hate it. And they either just play it like, um, like with no love at all. Or they hate it so much that they just stop practicing it and, and they uh, eventually just stop learning the piano. What very few people do is to go, could I love this more? Um, maybe I love this bit. Maybe I love the bit that goes, but this bit, meh. But, but you know, we can look at how to love every single note, even just the first note. So for example, if I play like this, that's not very lovable. Or if I do this, but there's a sweet spot. Um, and every single piano is going to be different in terms of if you play it softly, if you play it loudly, if you play, um, if, you, if I gradually crescendo, if I gradually get quieter. Um, and so much of this stuff, it doesn't have to be written in the music to, to do it. A lot of this can just be like going, what is there to love? And you'll naturally start putting more of your own things into it. Um, and some of what there might be to love is finding a tone, finding that like a texture, a color on the piano that you love. Because presumably you're playing the piano because you love the sound of a piano. Now, admittedly, this is not the most lovable piece of music here. But if I play it like this, it's certainly more lovable than if I was to do this. Um, so this is all part of looking for, for what there is to love. And we can practice this. Every single moment, we can choose to look for what there is to love, as opposed to just playing the notes. And this is what most people get drawn into. They're just going to be trying to play the correct notes. Am I playing the correct notes? Oh, uh, no, that was the wrong note. And then, oh, let me play. Let me make sure the notes are correct. Let me make sure the staccato is there. Let me make sure this note is correct. Now, if, if you're just basically having to go through it, really focusing super hard, making sure that everything is correct, and you don't have any leftover brain to think, well, what is there to love about this? Your playing will end up sounding like... With, uh, rather than something like... Which is obviously more musical. Now, if you think about the people who you love most, who are the musicians that are your favorite musicians that you love to listen to? And then think about this. What is it that makes them such good musicians? And I will bet you that, that what makes them good musicians is that they play with love. Love is the missing thing um, that people either have or don't have. And when people don't have it, they don't sound musical. Some people might go, really, really? But, but honestly, have a little bit of a think about that. And, and you know, all, my, all the podcast episodes uh, to do with psychology, to do with brain um, lateralization, brain hemispheres, and all the other psychological stuff that I'm going to keep coming back to, the central hypothesis, the central um, theory that I have about all of this is that love is musicality. You know, we live in a Western culture which um, is very cynical, uh, scientific, uh, left brain, which doesn't really believe in things like love. So, you know, it, it's really beyond the scope of this particular podcast episode. And I'll probably talk about it another time to talk about all of the new psychological ways of 
thinking about all things to do with the emotion of love. It's a bit beyond this one, but, but basically without love, uh, the, the need for competency, um, and then with love. And, and like to me, it's so obvious that there is just a switch which is without love and with love. And that is the only thing making the difference between those two styles of playing. So yes, I was saying earlier on that basically not practicing uh, the skill of looking for what there is to love is, is a very common problem. And I think some people might not sort of believe that this really is a skill that you can practice. As a lot of people uh, might know who've listened to other podcast episodes um, from Heart of the Piano, but I'm very interested in Buddhism and I've been like seriously studying Buddhism for a while recently. And I've been doing um, a lot of meditating, um, sort of meditating all my life really in, in various different ways. There is a very particular meditation called the Metta Bhavana, uh, which most people translate as um, sort of loving kindness meditation. Uh, I think um, uh, Metta... Uh, rather than loving kindness, some people think uh, it can be described better by thinking of the concept of friendliness as opposed to loving kindness, which can sound a bit, uh, I don't know, woo-woo or something. Uh, and then um, bhavana means cultivation. And uh, cultivation can be quite a, a useful kind of concept, a useful word to think about when we're trying to be musical. Um, because... Uh, you know, when you think about the, the literal meaning of cultivation, uh, which you do with crops, which you do with plants, which, uh, you know, is with things that grow, you don't make something grow. If, if you're gardening, you don't force it to grow. You, it's not like you, you work out how to make it grow. It wants to grow and you have to work out how to give it the best conditions and then you just let it grow. And in many ways, you know, when we're trying to make music, we are trying to cultivate the best conditions, that everything just flows out of us and, and sounds beautiful. One of the biggest sticking points with so many of my students is sort of really trying to force everything to happen in this sort of left-brained way. Um, uh, again, you know, like uh, uh, I do recommend to listen to uh, one of the last podcast episodes I did, which is the episode three of the um, uh, Brain Hemispheres that I did with Cheryl. Uh, and you can see there are very practical examples of how it just doesn't work so well when we try and force it. And, and again, like when we're concerned about whether or not we're being perceived as competent or we have this strong greed to feel competent, then we try and force it. We're not cultivating it. Cultivation is, is much more um, goes along with uh, the, the way that I'm describing love in this particular um, episode. So anyway, metta bhavana, it's, it's a form of meditation. Uh, I'm not going to go into it too much in, in this particular podcast episode, but the, the general gist of it is that you generate loving feelings or, or friendliness feelings might be a better way of putting it, you know, like like very warm, very accepting friendliness towards everything and towards everyone. And so, you know, you start with thinking of people who you, you really like, who are inherently, you know, very lovable. And then you notice what it feels like to to feel friendly towards them, um, which is not normally that, that difficult. Sometimes you start with yourself. Sometimes you start with cultivating friendliness towards yourself. Uh, you generally, at some point, end up, uh, if you're doing the meditation the way most people teach it, 
that you generate friendliness and loving kindness, if you want to call it that, to your enemies. And this is a skill that can be practiced because if you couldn't practice it, Buddhists would not be spending huge amounts of their lives practicing how to do this. This is a skill that can be practiced. But uh, to me, it's much easier to do it with music <laughs> than it is to do it with my with people who I don't like. <laughs> that's that's really difficult, you know. Obviously, but but even a, a, you know a piece of music that I really dislike that 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 you know I, I find quite difficult to love, I actually can look for what there is to love in it and love things about it without too much difficulty. And there have been times, you know, earlier in in my life where. I would have to perform a piece that I really didn't like. Um, when I performed it, people would love it and say things like, oh, you must absolutely love that piece. And then I knew that I'd done my job. My job as a musician is to be musical. And to be musical is to look for what there is to love in it and play with love, even when you don't actually love it. So, you know, for example, this piece here, that, you know, I'll play it again. Um, um, I mean, I don't love this. I really don't love this piece at all. Let me see how much I can. I think to really love it, I'd have to go quite a bit faster. Let's see. Um. Um, yeah, yeah, there we go. So... You know, I, I, I don't actually love this piece, but I'm, I, I can pretend that I love it. I can see what there is to love about it. And then that's going to be much better than me just going... Which is correct, but just not lovable. It's not musical. So any, anyway, hopefully I am kind of convincing people uh, listening to this that you can practice looking for what there is to love. It's not you either love it or don't love it. I think a lot of people um, feel that they can only learn pieces that make them go, oh my God, this is amazing. I love this piece of music so much. And if you don't feel that way about the piece straight away, that, well, I don't want to do it. Um, and Because it's worth practicing as well, because even pieces of music that you love, even pieces of music that you think, you know, I really want to play this. You know, let's face it, when we practice and we do it over and over and over again, and then we feel the pressure that we need to be good at it, if we're not careful, we will fall out of love with it. And so, you know, it is going to really help if we are still looking for what there is to love in pieces that we love. Because if we're not careful, the more we listen to it, the more we hear it, we stop loving it. We just hear, oh, it's these notes. Oh, it's just these notes and, you know, just this. Um, anyway, so let me move on to the next thing. So uh, another common problem of why people, uh, when I say look for what there is to love, find it quite hard to do this. I think to some people this can become a little bit of an intellectual exercise. So they know that I'm telling them that if they look for what there is to love in, in the music, that they're going to play better. But then, because it, it's still caught up in, right, I want to be a really good pianist, I'm going to look for what there is to love. And, and then it, it, it all is just like from, from the brain. It's all just very intellectual. This isn't really necessarily going to be what there is to love. Like, like for example, let's have a look at this piece. Um, and, and, and I think, I, and 
yeah, if it is like just purely intellectual, I am struggling to see what there is to love about this. And, and this is where a lot of my students are with this. They'll be like, I, I don't really know that they don't quite know how to answer that question because they are just looking for intellectual things. It doesn't come from the heart. Uh, it's, it's, uh, so, you know, if I'm genuinely thinking what is there to love, it's, it's, it's the character, it has a character. Um, you can love its character, its character, um, you can imagine, if this was a person, how would they be moving along? Um, uh, you know, they'd, almost with a skip, they'd, they'd be sort of moving quite, quite um, perkily, quite, quite, um, they're almost skipping. Um, you, you can see that they, they're going to be holding themselves up quite tall. Sunny, sunny is a word that comes to my mind, you know. Um, and, and there's just a feeling of ease and fun and enjoyment. And this is what there is to love. But if I look at it and go, right, what have we got? We've got these five, uh, these five notes and this forte and what is there to love? It's very, very hard when we're just trying to look at it intellectually. It's, it's seriously difficult. Which then brings me to, to another kind of point, which is that really, I think um, I've had some controversies <laughs> with students when... I say to them, you know, like when, when you're, let, let's say that, that you remember a, a time in your life where you really felt a lot of love for a person. Uh, it can be any kind of love, you know, but, but just think about what's it feel like? You go, what does it feel like to, to really love somebody? Where in your body is that sensation of really loving someone? And then I think that, you know, this comes up a lot and particularly, this comes up particularly with men. And I do think that in Western culture and particularly Northern European culture, uh, I haven't had much experience um, with uh, teaching people in America. I'd be curious about this. But certainly Northern European men, the, the whole concept of feeling love can be very, very difficult and vulnerable and something that, that when we grow up as boys and, and as men kind of gets indoctrinated out of us that, that this is not what men do in this culture. <laughs> it's, it's, it's too vulnerable. It's too scary to feel all these squishy feelings. And, you know, I could talk about this for ages. I'm going to try and resist talking too much about that kind of stuff. But so anyway, some, uh, uh, something that does come up quite regularly with, with, um, adult men uh, who I teach is the answer that when they think of a time in their life when they really loved someone, where is that sensation? It's in the head. It's, it's in the brain. And um, I personally think that to be musical, we have to cultivate, so not force, but sort of slowly explore and slowly discover that the, the, the feeling of love comes from the body and particularly from the chest. Uh, where, and, and, you know, I don't think it is just a figure of speech that people talk about things from the heart. I, I do think that this is where we feel certain emotions. It is in, in the heart. Um, and uh, something that uh, I will talk about in another episode to do with things that I encourage my students to do that will make them better musicians it's, this is a word that I use a lot. Uh, the word is interoception. And interoception, it's the opposite of extraception. Extraception is being aware of what is going on outside our body. Interoception is the felt sense 
of what everything is feeling like inside our body uh, in any given moment. I think that there's a lot of cultural stuff, particularly for men, to not feel what is going on inside our bodies. It's, um, and, and there are especially particular kinds of emotions. There are certain emotions that to be male in our culture, it, it, it's very dangerous to, to feel these things. Um, love, perhaps, being one of them. It's anything that makes us feel vulnerable. Uh, something that, that then I describe with people who don't like woo-woo, with, with uh, <laughs> you know, people who don't like talking about things being from the heart. What I describe is we want to feel interception in the chest. So it's basically, uh, and, and it's not thinking, it's not thinking about the inside of the body. It is like feeling the direct physical sensations ideally without mental interpretation, without labeling, but just like a feeling, well, what just are the raw physical sensations inside the body? And if we can start to become aware, what are the raw physical sensations in the chest? And then when I start playing something like... Um, so, so something that I do from time to time to try and kickstart this, this process. If, if I play this... Everyone knows that's, that's not complete. It's like if I was to do something like... Now, we, we all know that that's not complete. But how do we know? How do we know? If I go... And then... Now, I'm going to suggest that the reason why we know that is not complete... Yes, some of it could be on a mental level if we're really analysing and going, well, that's the dominant, and then the, here's the leading tone, and it hasn't resolved back to the tonic. But I would guess that for most people, most people are not analysing it in, in that structured um, and intellectual way. There is a feeling in the chest of tension, of, oh, something is, is incomplete. And, and, you know, it can be subtle, but there is this very, very subtle feeling somewhere in the chest of not complete. And in a way almost that like the breathing has stopped and there is suspense. You know, if you think about watching a horror movie or a drama or something which has huge, huge suspense, how do you know that you have the feeling of suspense? Uh, very often your breathing will slow down and, and your breathing might even stop for, for a little while. You'll hold your breath and be, oh, yeah, you know, like, like even literally if you hear that sound, you know, and, and that gasp. That, uh, so we go, it, it's very similar. It's a feeling of suspense and suspense is in the body. Now, a lot of the time, because we're not um, in our culture, very often we're not used to being aware of our body. We only know we're feeling it because we have the thought. But if we really sort of meditate, so we, we sit with that thought and, and we explore all the sensations in the body, we can start to go a little bit deeper and go, oh yeah, that thought is actually attached to a physical sensation. But it's subtle. It, it is quite subtle. And I do think that a lot of the art, the art as opposed to the science, the art of being a musician is about tuning in to the sensations in the body that we're feeling because we want our playing to have emotion and emotion is in the body. And I know that, that not everybody um, agrees with this or, <clears throat> or believes this. And then again, you know, this is another, I think, common problem that people have with uh, this skill of looking for what there is to love. 
which can be a very, very strong intellectual belief that our emotions are something that happens in the brain and not in the body. Now, obviously, to some degree, yes, they have to be in the brain. They have to be, where everything has to be mediated through the brain in some form or another. Um, now, in the future, I will do several podcast episodes on this new field of, of um, psychological research called embodied cognition. And embodied cognition just has so many very, very compelling arguments and evidence that the, the reason how we can be aware of things and think about things can only be because we have a body and we experience life through the body and that the body and the mind are absolutely inseparable. So, you know, since uh, the, the philosopher Descartes basically came to this very extreme view of this fundamental split between mind and body, which is really at the, the core root of so much of what it means to, to live in Western culture, to, to at the, you know, somewhere very deeply at the core of that, to strongly believe in a, a strong split between the mind and the body, that actually all the recent science is, is saying that there is no fundamental split between the mind and the body. So the reason why we have emotions is because we have a body and we feel emotions through that body. It's, it's, it's not possible to be a brain in a jar having emotions. That just couldn't be the case. We fundamentally need to have the body to experience it. Otherwise, it, it couldn't really exist in the brain. This runs very, very counter to so much of the, the philosophy of, of Western culture that, that's existed for hundreds of years. So even, even you know, so much um, television and film feeds the, the, this kind of narrative that it is possible to be uploaded to the cloud. Our consciousness can be uploaded to a computer and, um, you know, all, all these kinds of things. But fundamentally, all the research is showing this, this cannot be the case, that, that the mind and the body are just absolutely inseparable. Um, so, uh, anyhow, let's... Uh, uh, another problem, another common problem that people have with looking for what there is to love is um, they'll... In the way that it's an intellectual exercise, they'll go, there's an absence of things that I hate. Like, so for example, if someone's playing this, um, the thing they might say that they love about it is that it's not too difficult. That's not a thing to love. <laughs> that's, that's more just like the absence of a thing to hate. Um, and, and even if it was difficult, that's not necessarily a thing to hate. Sometimes we can love the challenge of it. Sometimes we can love the, the, the challenge to our fingers, the, the way it physically feels. But, you know, we, we, we can't just say, well, what I love about it is that I don't hate it. That, that's just um, not a thing either. So, yeah, I think I've gone through most of the points there, um, where, which is where people have problems. But, you know, I really just can't emphasize this enough that that you need to be consciously looking for what there is to love, unless you just do this naturally, unless it's just all the time. Um, um, you know, some people don't need to consciously look for what there is to love because they already have a, a subconscious habit of playing with love. But I, I would say that, yeah, and, and actually, you know, there, there was a piece that, that I've been 
looking at. I was looking at it yesterday uh, because there's something that I'm going to audition for um, next week. And so immediately, okay, I need to play this piece. I'm going to audition for it. I feel under pressure. And it, it wasn't, a, a, and so I decided that I'm going to play a piece that uh, I, I was playing to quite a high level recently, but it, it's not my first choice of piece that I really want to go back and practice right now. So I was practicing it yesterday and just not feeling it and just thinking, oh, I'm, I'm just not playing it well at the moment. What, what is the problem with this? And then, and then I realized I'm just completely wrapped up in being mostly focusing on, well, how well am I playing it? How competent am I being? And I realized I'm not loving. I'm not looking for what there is to love in this music. I'm now just getting sucked in to worrying about how well I'm going to play and how well I'm going to do in this audition. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then I'm thinking to myself, well, okay, you know, you're nagging your students all the time about this. Let's give it a try. And it did feel, it felt like some things were, I felt resistance that I didn't really want to sit down and start looking for what there was to, to love in it. Um, but, you know, I did it. And then before too long, I was just absolutely absorbed and noticing very particular characters and emotions and narrative in this, in this piece that I'd never noticed before. And I'd never, uh, I don't think I'd noticed the sensation of being just so completely emotionally absorbed in this piece of music that I was playing. Because I think I'd never properly cultivated and practicing just looking that much for what there was to love in it, because I already kind of loved the piece when I was learning it. But then I realized, no, my God, this, this is something that I can take to a whole new level with, with this piece. So, you know, even with me, nagging my students about this all the time, this is still something that I can do way, way more of, like, consciously look for what there is to love, even when I'm already playing with what I think feels like, like love. And, um, and I really do believe that whatever piece of music that you are learning, even if you are playing beautifully, so musically, and it's suffused with, with so much love and, and musicality, I still think that if you consciously go, well, could I love more? Do I love every single note? Do I, do I love this first note here? Like, like let's take this, this piece again. Like, like, how much could I just love the first note? The first two notes. And as I'm doing this, I'm experimenting with different ways that I can move my, my fingers, my, my wrist, my arm. Um, And then I'm not only looking for what there is to love in the music, but I'm looking for what there is to love about this particular piano. I'm exploring all the different ways that I can make this unique piano come to life. And then, and then also, and here's another thing that you can practice as well, not only what is there to love in the music, but what is there to love about my playing? And, and you know, you don't always have to put it into words. 
because you know let's face it we can all look for what there is to hate about our playing like like when I'm playing it I can go oh that note was a bit was a bit um, too uh, uneven it, it, it jabbed a bit too much uh, you know it's so easy to notice what there is to not love about music and our playing And with all of that, I'm just basically experimenting all the different ways that I can play and how I can find different things to love every single way that I play it. And this is proper, proper practicing in my book. I think that what a lot of my students do is they just go and the playing is identical every single time. It's like the, 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 the right notes are being played, but there's no nuance. And, and the nuance is like the same every single time with not looking for anything there is to love. And I think that when you look for, for what there is to love, So, you know, it's very, very subtle, but every single time that I'm doing that, there's something very, very subtly different every single time that I'm playing it. Um, and then... So, you know, yeah, hopefully you're getting a feeling, you're getting a really strong feeling of what it means to me to be practicing looking for what there is to love, which is very, very opposite to just going, I have to play the correct notes, I've got to get the correct phrasing, I've got to get the, the, the correct um, articulations. I think when you're looking for what there is to love, these things happen naturally. And, and you know, here's, an, here's another really important point that I just want to make before I say goodbye for this particular episode. When we don't practice with love, we practice out of duty. And then, you know, we're trying to play all, all the correct notes. We're trying to make all, all the phrasing just right. It's not really very enjoyable. We have to force ourselves to do this kind of practicing. I can't practice like that because I just don't have the willpower. Uh, to me, when I practice, it's not about willpower. It's about love. It's about enjoyment. Now, if you think about someone who you really deeply have strong love for, uh, that can be the love for a parent, the love for a friend, the love for someone you're related to, or romantic kind of love. Now, you, it, I'm sure you can imagine, let's say that this person is ill, or they have an emergency, or, and they need you to do something that you ordinarily, you would not want to do this thing. Something that, that you, you just really ordinarily just absolutely wouldn't do. But if someone you loved needed you and it was an emergency, you would just go and do it. And you would do it willingly and you'd feel good about it because you, you love this person. And so the feeling of love, when you're feeling it genuinely, will inspire you to do the work that's needed to, to make it sound excellent. And so earlier on, you know, when I was talking about the sensation, and I do think that there's a, a physical sensation in the body of feeling good enough, as opposed to the physical sensation of insecurity, self-judgment, 
and, and feeling inadequate. That has its own um, physical sensation. So I realized quite early on, like when I was quite young, that if I practiced feeling in my being that everything I played was already good enough, I'd play better. But that, that feeling of good enough, it's not like, ah, it'll do, it's okay, uh, yeah, whatever. Um, because when you're then practicing with love for the music, feeling that you as a human being are good enough, the love you have for the music will make you do the practice that you need to make it beautiful, to make you as excellent as you can be in the way that when you love someone, you do what it takes um, for that person. So, you know, this can be sort of quite a subtle thing that, you know, many of my students feel very resistant. They feel that they can only learn if they're beating themselves up and, you know, kind of kicking themselves up the bottom, right? And there's a field of study on self-compassion. Kristen Neff is like the expert on this. And there's a, there's a lot of sort of academic studies that she's been doing into this that shows that, that when you are approaching your work from a place of self-compassion, um, you do better. Uh, you have more motivation. You have more willpower. The, the, the opposite of that, which is just being very harsh on yourself and being very self-critical and, and not treating yourself well, it can work in the very short term, but it doesn't work in the long term and, and it has very bad side effects. So, so basically, you know, again, this is a thing that we can practice. We can practice noticing where we feel self-judgmental um, and that we don't think that we're good enough. And, and again, this is something I'll talk about quite a lot in future episodes because th- there's so much I can go into in this, but it, but it is a skill. So anyway, um, yes, uh, we can work on that sense of feeling good, good enough. Not good enough that we don't have to then do any further work. We feel good enough that we are inherently valuable as a musician. We are lovable as a musician, that what we do is lovable, that when I go, that sure, I could pick it apart. I could pick it apart. Some person could be looking over my shoulder and rip it apart. But the point is that I choose to perceive my playing as lovable as I'm playing it. Because if I don't do that, I will fall to pieces, I will play worse, and I won't want to play. We, we all have to cultivate this, this um, sense of good enough, especially when we're performing and under pressure. And then, when we look for then what there is to love in the music, that is then what makes us look for the ways of, of playing it really beautifully. So anyway, I've done a, a, a lot of waffling there, but I hope that, that I've basically convinced you of the main points of look for what there is to love and look for it in every single moment, every note, um, every bar, every moment, feel it. Look for, look for how you can love as something that you feel inside your chest. Um, so anyway... Uh, thank you very much for listening. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please do uh, like and subscribe on your uh, platform of choice. Uh, like everything that you can do to support the, the channel um, really, really helps. Uh, and um, thank you very much for listening and uh, see you at, at the next episode. 
and, and by the way, I am available for teaching, and my teaching is not just uh, uh, the, um, all of this psychological stuff and uh, woo-woo stuff of looking for what there is to love, but, uh, but also can be very, very specific, technical, analytical stuff as well. And actually, I do have a YouTube channel, which is uh, also called uh, Heart of the Piano, and uh, if you're interested in my teaching style, uh, there are plenty of tutorial videos, particularly for things like ABRSM Grade 8, and you can see the, the kind of more nitty-gritty, uh, analytical, technical stuff uh, uh, to do with how I teach as well. So anyway, see you at the next episode, and thank you very much for listening.